there's two aspects of this practice that I want to zero in on today. And uh, the first one, which is mostly what I want to talk about, is the, the concentration aspect of this practice and, uh, and how we do that and how it works and the value of that. And uh, I also want to talk a little bit about compassion. Hopefully they flow together like one talk. But before I begin either, I just want to say um, that, just to be clear, we use the word, these days we, we're all preferring to use the word friendliness for metta. The, the more typical for longer time translations, loving kindness, lovely word. But the loving part can be a little loaded. And so I just want to make sure that you all really understand that there's a whole continuum of what the meaning of metta is. And uh, it can be really strong loving. It can be really super divine, all connected, ultimately awakened state of no separate self at all and all is one and one is all and that's metta. It can be loving, caring, fond, sweet, close, cherishing, which is really what we often think of as loving. It can be liking. It can be appreciating, enjoying, be, like befriending, open, interested, receptive, respectful. That's metta. It can be um, allowing, accepting, letting in. It doesn't have to be like, doesn't have to be love. It doesn't have to be like even. But when there isn't any resisting or trying to make it different or doing anything with it, but allowing things as it is or someone to behave in how they do, that's also metta. It can even cool to the degree of being tolerating. Even when you don't like it, clearly it's an unpleasant scenario. But if the heart isn't troubled with or isn't pushing against, isn't struggling in any way, that also is metta. It's the absence of the the sense of oneself against anything, to whatever extent that goes. So just be, you know, it's, don't exalt it. Don't try and look for or anticipate gush or juice necessarily at all. And it's possible sometimes, but that's not, that's only one end of the range. And, um, this thought came to me actually in my own retreat. I mentioned the first night that I sat a couple of months retreat just fairly recently, October, November. And, um, and I wasn't doing metta. I wasn't doing metta formally. The whole th- retreat was imbued with metta hugely. But it was a concentration retreat, which is of course why I want to talk about it tonight. But somewhere in that retreat to- towards... No, somewhere, in, it wasn't me towards the end. Somewhere in there I was walking... And uh, in walking, you know, walking, being present, walking, meditative walking. And, uh, and I realized I was having a, a bunch of fantasies. It was actually fairly near the beginning of the retreat. My mind was fantasizing. And I said to myself, I realized for myself, when the mind does that, when any mind does it, and this mind was doing it, it's actually doing meta for itself. It's trying to make itself feel okay. It's bored walking in this rainy field. <laughs> And so if it fantasizes it, it thinks it'll feel better. In, in other words, it wasn't being very meditative, but it was actually not being my enemy. And then I thought, you know, almost everything we do is really can be seen as some form or other of metta. 
Even the most neurotic things we do, even the things, you know, let's go to Vegas and win money maybe, is kind of, you know, well, maybe I'll feel better if I do that. It's that we're actually trying, even in a very limited and often unsuccessful way, to feel okay. We don't need to be so down on ourselves for all the things or do all of our odd things. I love this about about the Buddha and the way these teachings are. There isn't any word like sin or evil or even wrong. You can't do it wrong. It's about seeing where you're deluded or you're confused or you're hung up or caught in struggle or in stress. And that's a pretty forgiving way of seeing our neurosis. You know, I mean, we're neurotic. We're neurotic. I like that word neurotic. We're all a bit neurotic. It's forgiving, it's allowing, it's befriending, it's meta-language. Even when it doesn't lead to well-being. And of course, what we all want is well-being and everything we're doing is attempting it. But a lot of it falls very far short of actually, long-term anyway, feeling good. The teachings and these practices work to do the thing that we're always wanting. Every one of us, whatever it is that's happening. So, when we are disturbed, distressed, upset in any way, our minds fracture. The more distressed we are, the more disturbed we are, the more fractured we become. The extreme of this is split personalities. People call it splitting off. When we're not so extremely fractured, we're just are very, very busy multitasking. There's many of us doing many, many things going on. It's extremely broken up in there. As we become healthier, and this is all of us any time because we go from being fractured to not, just in a blink of an eye sometimes, but as we become more healthy, there are fewer of us, as it were. And we become one of, one of my latest ways of, of perceiving this is uh, when disturbed, I become a pack of puppies. And you know what puppies do, they're all over the place and running in all different directions and running amok. And as they settle down, there are fewer of them. And then sometimes there's one of them, and sometimes that one becomes a mature dog who's like a well-behaved border collie. You know, he'll do actually just exactly what I want and love me, you know. And sometimes that one of us, of me, goes to be so unified that it even becomes none of us and it becomes everything. The most, the most gathered and collected healthy aspect is no longer even a separate one. But the least together we are, the more of us there are. Does that make sense to you? So what we're doing in concentration practice, in all these practices, in all meditative practices pretty much, is we're gathering in the herds of puppies. You know, We're collecting as Donald said, this was his words we're using, gathering in, collecting the disparate, dispersed, and not just, they're not just dispersed parts of ourselves. They're very busy. And they're busy, I think, of in two ways. They're busy because they're hungry for something else. Like what's happening isn't okay, they're upset, so they're like frantically trying to fix it. So there's a hungry puppy thing. And they're also nervous. There's anxiety and hunger going on. The Buddha called it thirst, the second noble truth. But 
it's the same thing. We get anxious and we get needy. So hungry and nervy puppies is disturbed. Concentration practice, the concentration aspect of our meditation is healing this. It's nourishing and reassuring. It's not, that's not just a fanciful way that I've thought it up. We, we've heard already in this retreat that fantastic image, very powerful image of the Buddha sitting there under the Bodhi tree, determined to become completely unified, completely to see clearly with no confusion. And at times he's confused. At times he is disturbed and distracted and he's got multiple puppies and they call them, it's called in the story, the armies of Mara. And the imagery is arrows. That's like multiple puppies going on. It's an army of stuff besetting him. And that's just simply the mythological version of describing the fractured sense of self that's distressed or disturbed or hungry. And that image of he doesn't buy into the distress, they're just thoughts, they're just different states that we all know, we all have, they're not different. Mara isn't anything other than than what we all know. But because of the Buddha's ability to recognize this is distress, this is fracture, the arrows can't penetrate him and don't, don't, he doesn't believe it. He doesn't get bought into being disturbed. He can see the activity, but it doesn't take him away and so they turn to flowers, harmless and even beautiful. It's exactly the same image, of the, sort of the onslaught of all of the stuff. Somebody I remember speaking to in the first day it always seems when we've had three days of retreat that we've had like 30 days of retreat. Somewhere back there, I spoke to somebody who was saying, who'd had a big upset before coming to the retreat. And there was so much going on. You know, she was just like, oh, I'm all over the place. There's this and there's this and there's this. It's exactly a perfect example. We know it well. I have a good friend who says, um, if she's, not feeling so good, she says, oh, my little ones are really acting up today. (laughs) And that's why I use puppies, because it's meta-like to think of them instead of arrows, I think, and armies, which isn't exactly my imagery. So we don't be so concerned by them, but we're trying to collect them together into fewer. We've told you and given you instructions about what to do. We know these are the phrases, this is what you do. And so I want to emphasize a little more the finesse of how we do it. Because there's, ho- there's many aspects of, of, it's like we're teaching you a skill. You're learning a skill. And so, as I've said to a few of you, and for some reason I've had for many years in my mind, when I think of skill, I think of violinists for some reason. I have never been close to violin playing, but I think of it as a ex- supreme skill. And, uh, and so, you know, you tell the person when you start teaching them, okay, so you hold this here and you put your fingers here and you hold this like this and you do this with your chin. That's what you do. But then the rest of the practicing, the learning, is how you do that, how firmly you do it, how steadily you do it, how softly. It's all the finessing. So um, that's what I'm wanting to share a little with you. There are these two um, parts, really, of practicing metta. One is the general friendliness of which I've referred now about different ways. The attitude that isn't antagonistic. 
having puppies instead of arrows in your life. Just as a general feeling of friendliness. But there's also the specific doing, the phrases, the kinds of phrases, the meaning of them, the, the, uh, the sort of the nuts and bolts parts, both. We can befriend situations in the world, and we do, and we want to. The more our practice establishes itself in us, Vipassana practice as well as metta practice, the friendlier we find ourselves, the more easy our heart does become anyway. The actual doing part is the, the part that we can do like we can in retreat like this, specifically and over and over and uh, particularly. And so I'm going to continue on with where Donald was beginning when he was talking about concentration, how um, our practice of concentration, what we learn in it is how much doing is required and how much being done by those weren't his words, those are mine. How about how much the letting it unfold is required? And this is an endless dance. It's a balancing all the time. When do we need to do a little more doing and when can we back off and allow the unfolding? Trust the feelings to carry us. And it's a it's a it's an elegant place, a fine place. Um, and that we can always be be aware of being in this. So this practice, it isn't just the nuts and the bolts, the doing. It isn't just the mechanics of doing. We need that. We need that to, to collect around because we've got these dispersed puppies. So how do we collect them? So we begin to give them something to do and this is the task they do and these are the phrases. But it is not just mechanical repetition. Even if we were to do, and at times find ourselves doing mechanical repetition, it, it goes into another, this other dimension of how we're feeling. Even if we were saying it in a different language, and we didn't know the sense of what we're saying, and we're just saying, the very act of collecting around something has an effect on our systems. It's reassuring when we're not so scattered and we're more collected, the system feels more settled. And then it relaxes. It feels, um, oh, this is a relief. And when it feels a relief, it begins to feel more content and then more at ease and then happier. Just even if we don't know any meaning of anything we're collecting around, just being settled. As Sylvia described in the beginning with her very, she didn't, you know, when she was new, she just repeated and repeated these words. She hadn't much of a relationship with them initially, but the feeling it gave her, not magic words, was just the very fact of beginning to concentrate and collect. What I love about this practice is that it's way more than that. It has that effect by the repetition of anything. But because we're repeating the most beautiful wishes that we, we can all imagine, the actually finest states we would like to live in, that's what we're actually inviting and calling up. The power of the feeling of, that comes along with it can be exquisite. So really it's the, as the mind gets more settled down, 
it rests in these lovely states that we're inviting. Just a resting, settled mind feels better than a fractured one. But when it rests in friendliness or in calm or in happiness or in beauty or whatever the beautiful things you're calling up, it's absolutely delicious. And when it can rest there and rest there and rest there for initially some minutes and eventually hours and eventually days and eventually weeks, what's going on actually is that our whole system's getting rewired. And you know it's all measured now in your computers and people with neuro gear on our heads can measure the fact that actually there's rewiring happening right in the very brain cells plastic brain cells growing different grooves. It's powerful. There's an element of um, concentration, absolutely essential element, and that is an element of gentleness. But it has to be a a gentleness that keeps going, that goes with persistence. It's not push. It's not hard, it's not work. It shouldn't be uphill. It shouldn't be any degree of strain because very soon, usually, sooner or later anyway, there will be aversion to that because it's unpleasant. It's like, ugh, slog isn't, doesn't sound a groovy word, does it? It's a great word, slog. <laughs> and so if you're slogging, you won't, it's not sustainable. And so it needs to be so gentle that you can actually be able to abide in it and keep it going gently. But it needs to be keeping going for the unification to to develop and to uh, build the grooves in you. I've never been there. Some of you have been there um, to the Himalayas. And I think the people in the Himalayas don't say Himalayas, they say Himalayas. I don't know that because I've never been there. (laughs) But... um, Apparently, people who live there from that land walk up those, whatever they are, mountains very slowly. Whereas the visitors walk quite fast and then have to stop for a break. And then along come the local people. And then off go the Westerners. And then they'll come. This, they know how to sustain it. They live there. They're used to not having huge amounts of oxygen. They know the steep terrain. How you do it is gently and steadily. We tend to rush and push and want results and then give up and then do something else and then off we go again. <laughs> you know, That's much more the kind of Western way, I think, or certainly the North American productive, we think, way. It's actually the tortoise winning over the hare in this particular practical meditation. It's a gentle, gradual, often imperceptible growing and, uh, and it's hard when it's imperceptible because we get impatient. We want to see results. We want to prove, you know, this is working. We're not patient in this culture. And the more modern it gets, you know, the, as time goes by, the faster it gets, the less patient we are. But so think of things like rain barrels filling with drops of soft rain. You know, it's not a psh, and now it's full. It fills very gradually, but it fills reliably and so on any kind of images that you can. Gentle, persistent, practicing. So repeating over, 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 gently, gently, 
grows this thing into your system. So um, one of the one of the benefits of concentration, which you're doing and gradually doing more of, is because, as I've said, just the gathering itself calms the mind down, we feel more calm. But because these are the most beautiful qualities and states of mind that we're growing, they nourish us. If we say, may I feel safe, and we feel a little safe, that's a relief. We can rest in the relief of it, but that is, it's reassuring the system that's nervous, was nervous. You know, life's unsure. We don't know what's going to happen around the next corner. It's hard. When we can be reassured, we relax more. The more we relax, the more we feel safe. The more we feel safe, the more we... It's like that. It just grows and grows. The whole thing is nourishing. I'd say one of the... It's one of the main words I would say that we... uh, we can feel through concentration practice, shamatha practice, is nourished. It's the resting that's nourishing. We think that doing will get what we want. We're looking for goals, looking for results, doing tasks, trying to grow meta in ourselves, being busy. And actually what we're doing is we're running out of energy and getting tired. If we can bring this element of settling into it, and relaxing into the states themselves, they are what feed us. It happens in a much more passive way, much more organic way than by will. They're called the divine abidings. Divine meaning the beautiful states, the the finest states we can experience as humans and those states which those who are divine those humans who are momentarily mind you in some expansive state very few human beings are permanently divine there are a few for many humans they have great expansive moments and then they lose it over something or other when we are, any of us, in a state of our, our greatest capacity, our, our greatest goodness, these states are there. They're natural there. As we abide, it means, it means sinking into, it means resting in. It's a restful thing. And this may sound a little different because especially for the new people who have not been on a meta retreat before we've just bombarded you with a huge amount of stuff to do and different ways and different words and different flavors as Larry said the other night loved it when he said that he said you're going to hear all these different styles because they're our experience each one of us we have our own ways and as I said in the beginning it's like an art we're all very different the way we process information the you know our tendencies the ways our minds are wired. And so there's different ways to access it. It's an art form. And you're going to hear our different ways. But nevertheless, for you, what your practice needs to be for it to develop this concentrated aspect, not just the general feeling of it, but the, the, 
the benefit that you can get by being in a retreat and being settled in it, abiding in it. That sentence completely evaporated. <laughs> Funny how that happens. It even happens right in the middle of a Dharma talk. You know it happens to you when you're talking to us, well it happens to us when we're talking to you. Um, some of you know the two words that we uh, are used in the Pali language, the teachings of the Buddha, um, related to practice, training, vitaka and vichara. Yeah, some people, if you know that, those two words. Often translated as connecting and sustaining. Used a lot in Vipassana training to connect the mind with the object of what you're aware of and then s- to sustain your attention there. When it comes to metta, it's um, inviting the state by, by saying your phrase, which is an invitation, and then dwelling in it. Dwelling. I love the word abiding. So there's a settling, there's a, a sinking into it. And uh, I think I want to share with you some of the ways that I do that. So when I'm doing my metta practice, I think I'll come to saying when it's not very different from Vipassana practice, but I'll come to that, is um, I invite the state, by whatever the phrase may be, then I climb inside it. I kind of immerse myself in that state of feeling. I don't do it very fast. Um, I'll share with you my words because I don't want to give you too many different instructions and have you keep now rearranging yours, but nevertheless, I'll share with you them because they're interesting. Um, I don't, for myself, use a lot of words. I find in my experience that my meta for me is in, it's in my heart, and my heart isn't, isn't, a, isn't wordy, my head is wordy. It can be very wordy. Um, and so I don't want to spend time too much in my head with it. I want to get into inside the feeling of what I'm feeling. That's the way it works for me. And so I, my first, um, so I don't have lots of words, but I just have trusting goodness, calm and peaceful, warm and tender, free and easy. They have a little rhyme to them, which I find useful. And trusting goodness is my equivalent of safety because trust and safe to me are so close together. And so when I say trusting goodness, I invite that feeling of trusting. And I, you know, what do I trust? Well, there's absolutely no question I trust goodness, whatever that can mean, anything. You know, it's very general. And then when I say that trusting, I, I want, by doing it, I'm inviting myself to climb inside a state of trusting and to feel myself completely trusting. So I feel my system settling. I even, I told somebody this today, I don't often say this, but I've said this before. My, the way I also work is imagery. And sometimes, I, I don't do this very often anymore, but when I was doing this in the beginning and learning these and liking these phrases, my image is of going to sleep in a flower, being a fairy and going to sleep in a flower. I don't mind how wussy you think that is, but anyway. (laughs) Happiness for me as a child was not in the family home, it was in the garden. (laughs) 
And so it had flower fairies that were my friends. And so trusting goodness is a settling down. In, it's a pink poppy, actually, if you care. <laughs> calm and peaceful. When I say calm and peaceful, I then imagine my whole system being so calm and peaceful that I can sort of root myself into the earth or merge into the earth. So it's a kind of very downwards, grounded settledness. It's very, very stilling. Warm and tender is this, it's the heart itself and it's in opening to beings and allowing them in and allowing me out and it's, it's delicate and soft and sometimes more tentative, but it's, it, it feels an opening in this way. And then the last one I say, free and easy, with that the classic phrase of living with ease. And it's a sense of being very light, being open right to the universe. Like the sky, the, you know, the cosmos, and, and me not being separate from it. So it's got this openness and lightness. So it's got both the steadiness of the earth and the lightness of space, and the warmth of connection, and the, the being safe, the resting. And those words, those states for me, are abidings. Like my system can settle there. And so the calm that comes from concentration is in that kind of imagery and experience for me. So we say the words, we say the blessings, the meaning of the blessings starts seeping in. But can we abide in the feeling of that, the meaning of that? And we're invited to abide, divine abidings. So it doesn't have to be busy. You can't rest and be busy. So what the invitation is, even when you're new and learning how to play your violin and you're thinking of your feet and your breath and your fingers and the whole angle of everything, and I'm sure it must be incredibly busy, I'm wanting to encourage you to trust the simplicity of the practice and to allow the the meaning of each blessing to be a a thing that can hold you, that can support your heart, that can support your life, that can nourish your spirit. Another way of helping with this calming is that um, even though our tendency is to be productive and our tendency is to get things and to build things and make things and do things, projects and everything, and the project of being a good meta-meditator, it's actually the opposite. All of our meditation, all in, in the Buddhist teachings, are actually undoings, not doings. They're letting goes, not, not collectings. And so when you think of it like that, you think of safety. When you say, may I feel safe? Safety itself isn't really something so much as it's an absence of anything to worry about. There is no one breathing down your neck. There is no threat lurking around the neighborhood. There is no one going to whistle in and whisk your shawl away. There isn't anything to guard against. In the absence of threat, the absence of disturbance or worry, we are safe. We just are safe. We're naturally safe until something disturbs the safety. So it's not getting safety, it's just not worrying about disturbance. So it's a kind of letting go. The same with calm and peaceful. 
when you undisturb the situation, it settles down. When you stop shaking the water, it goes still. When you stop blowing on the lake, it becomes tranquil. When the, when the activity is removed, the anxiety, the busyness is removed, what's left is peace, is calm. Is when you've had a good meal, you're hungry, you need something, you want this, you need a bit of this, a little more angivita yeast on the salad. And then you eat the meal, and then you're satiated and you're satisfied. And then what you feel is content. It isn't a thing you feel, it's the absence of needing anything. You can rest in that feeling. When it's, when it's friendly, the whole the heart of this teaching, when you're with a really good friend, really you're not going through anything. You're not going through pride, you're not going through showing off, you're not proving anything, you're not worried about judgment, you're not impressing, you're not bored. You totally care about your dear friend. You're completely interested, with no God. You're not doing anything. It's the most natural undoing state, friendly. Warm. It's how we are when we're not troubled. And of course, living with ease is exactly that. It's like the ease of well-being when there isn't anything that's a problem. No grit. So think of your metta practice not so much as a, as a, a thing you're trying to get, but letting go of what's in the way of these natural, simple states to rest in. So you see that the aspect, the aspect of concentration that I'm talking about isn't so much the doing part. I'm emphasizing the being part, which is where we can move. Initially, we have to do. We have to collect puppies. We have to gather them in, focus them, and give them tasks, and we, that's necessary. If we just rest with a crazy bunch of puppies, we're totally gone all over the place. There's no settling down. So we focus and we direct. We do the doing, the building blocks, the phrases, the repetition, the different muses, different categories. And then we begin to s- settle into it, rest in it. When you think of the sutta, you know, the, the, the Buddha's words on loving kindness, get them out here. towards the end. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Then he says, my favorite line, as I said last night, if anyone stayed up late, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies, downwards to the depths, outwards. One should sustain this recollection. There's a steady quietness. You're not doing it. You're not sending blessings over the world. They're radiating. It's passive. Passive heating. A radiant heater. It's not a fan blowing hot air. It's just being warm. And so it radiates much more passively. So you need to be abiding in a state of friendliness. And it can't but radiate. It's not so active as you initially think. Nothing is. We make it busy. We believe in busyness. We think that's the way.
some of the words that are used around this practice are pervade. It's a very gentle, expanding, non-doing word. Pervade, suffuse, infuse. They're all passive words, aren't they? They're not active, busy words. Radiate. And so metta is not a task. And, and I really do encourage you to, to be ingenious about your own ways. Not complicated, don't try whole new systems, but trust that your own instincts will guide you. When this feels reassuring, or this feels nourishing, or this feels friendly, this way, do that. I've said to lots, almost everyone I've spoken to individually today, you cannot do this wrong. The only wrong, and it isn't even wrong, is when you're not meditating because we're wanting you to meditate. Meditating means being. Meditate actually means standing in the middle of this moment. As that Sylvia's beautiful phrase, may I meet this moment fully. If you're fully here with this moment, you're meditating. So be fully here. How you do it, you're going to do your own speed, rhythm, word, climb inside it, pervade yourself with it, hold yourself in this, whatever. That's your individual creative thing. And when you make it like this way, then it's, it's, uh, it's alive for you, it's your own, it's, it's experimental, it, it brings up your creativity, it engages you, it's interesting, and it's, then your heart's way more in it, and then it's way more effective, then it nourishes you more, then you love it more, you're going to get hooked in no time flat. Some people like the, the a rhythm. When I was in my teacher training group, it's now quite a few years ago, there were eight of us, and one day we, we were um, invited by Sylvia to spend the day with Sylvia to talk about metta. And, metta, and Sylvia, I don't know if you remember this, Sylvia, but maybe you will when I say it, asked us how we, did our own, how we all did our own metta practice, and two of the eight of us stood up, and, uh, and one... Do you remember? He was kind of like, what do you do with a drunken sailor? Kind of like swashbuckling, da 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 da. <laughs> he didn't use those words, he used meta words, but it had a kind of like dancey rhythm like this, and he did this with this. And the other was la 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 la, sort of much more operatic. But both were singing. For instance, creative. Love it. Enjoy it. Make it yours. Somebody today, one of the people I was speaking to, said, I think I can float in that. Um, expansiveness. The Buddha says this many times if you read the suttas, my heart is grown wide with loving kindness. It's a big, it's a big thing. Because as soon as we're, we're tender towards somebody, we're bigger than ourselves. When we're concerned about ourselves, there isn't room for anyone because we're small. As we begin to be able to open, it's an, an expansion. That act is expansive. And we can't do that because we're so tender and nervous unless we feel safe, unless we feel nourished. So those beautiful states that we're inviting allow the opening. And the more we do it, the more open we get, the bigger we feel, the broader our awareness, spreading over the entire world. It's a very... We feel that. We feel we self. We grow with this practice. I'm sure you're going to find this yourself. 
May there be lots of room in my friendly heart. I want to talk just a bit about muses, about categories. I just want to put my word in here about these categories. I can't, for me, even the word category doesn't fit with my heart. I think categories of lists of things. I don't think of people that way, particularly. I use the word muse. I always think of um, Shakespeare in Love, that movie, with, um, who are the actors? Fiennes, and what was the woman? That's right, Paltrow. Um, And she was his muse because of his love for her and then his loss of her, how he, his emotion is so brought up and then out can come all his beautiful creative energy. So we use our categories, we use these beings, these muses, to help us get in touch with our caring, our tenderness, our warmth, or our wishing for them to have these beautiful experiences. We're using them. It isn't about them. It doesn't matter who they are. So it doesn't matter if your benefactor is your puppy. It's actually a muse to help evoke access for your heart to these states. I want to say a word about benefactor. Benefactor comes from the Latin. When I was at my boarding school in England, we learned Latin. And when I thought about this, it's the funniest thing. I thought this is the very first verb we learned was a mo, a mass, a mat. A marmus, a martis, a mat, which means I love, you love, etc. Except that our teacher was an old... I was a young kid, old, white-haired, very bored New Zealand, large woman who'd say, Amo, Amas, Amat, Amamas, Amatis, Amat. And then we, we would say, Latin is a language as dead as dead could be. First it killed my teacher, now it's killing me. <laughs> we thought she was really dead. She had no, you know, she'd say, Amo had no feeling of I love at all. Dead. But what I have found is having learned Latin for a few years, I love words in the English language. It's really been a great, I'm so glad I learned Latin, however much I didn't think I was learning anything. Benny factor. Benny is well or good. Factor is to make. So your benefactor is any being who makes you feel good or well or whole. Anyone. My, I couldn't do benefactor. As soon as I, my idea of benefactor, when I first learned it, was... Um, a big, wise, helpful, elder kind of person. That's pretty typical. But I didn't have one. And so I couldn't stand it. I just felt so bereft. I felt poor me. I was hopeless. It was years later that I discovered that my, I, my son was then 16. I first actually began to let Meta in. I couldn't. 15 years I would hear Meta at Vipassana retreats in the afternoons. I couldn't stand it. I just felt inadequate. I felt like, no way, my heart's made of stone. My son was 16 when I began to practice metta genuinely, and what I was able to do was pretend that he was two or three. And a two-year-old little boy, your own, no problem. And I realized that my benefactor wasn't, he wasn't the benefactor by being this big, he was benefiting me because he allowed me to be loving. The most loving I'd ever been with anyone, the best loving you can do. And so he was, of course, my benefactor. So I began to become more flexible about how I thought this was supposed to work. Another thing I just want to say briefly about um, muses. 
is um, they tend to select themselves. You think you're choosing one, and then actually it's somebody else. Or you choose one, and their other one comes in. I have a son and a stepdaughter. If I choose one, the other one comes right in. They just like sit right plonk beside each other, always. So I do them together. And so that's fine. It's great. It has a life of its own, and so enjoy that part. They don't, it isn't about them. They're just helping you be friendly, be wishing well. And soon we realize it's not about them, it's because we expand and expand. Just wanted to say that. Um, then a mention here. I was doing this shamatha retreat, this re- concentration retreat, with just the breath, for weeks and weeks recently. Uh, but what I found was that, um, as I'm saying, the, the more I did it, the quieter I got, the more tender I got. And I was in a silent retreat, but I was in Devon in England, and I grew up in England, as you can hear, and I love the countryside of England. And I had so much love during this time. I was in love with the little birds, I was in love with the the baby, I even collected out of love baby leaves from the hedgerows because there's such a variety of broadleaves there compared to where I live, which is mostly fir trees. And um, like, for instance, I got to know all the cows and all the sheep and all the horses in all the different fields. And, and this had a field of young, they were so cute. They weren't quite lambs, they were kind of young women, sheep, you know, but they weren't silly old sheep yet. They were cute still, but they're full grown and curious. So they didn't have boredom and they didn't have um, fear either. They were young. And so they would all come up. Mostly sheep don't do that. They kind of look at you and go to sleep, you know. But these all came to you. They were so cute. And then I saw these two old rams in the field with them and I realized, oh, they were the first year breeding stock, you know. So they were the ones who were getting laid in that field. And so I'd say, hello, girls, you know, how are you? And, uh, and I saw over here there was this, this uh, whole herd of cows and very green, green fields, and, uh, and then they weren't there. And I was like, oh my God, maybe they've gone to market. And then I went through, you know, agony. And then they came back, so they'd be moved. The farmers are conscientious. They move them around the different fields so the fields don't get too overeaten and everything. So they were back. I was so happy they were back. I was like, welcome back. You're fine. I'm so happy. And then one day I saw four of them in the next door field. And as I watched doing my walking practice in the footpath in the fields, the four in the next door field found an opening and went to join the rest of the herd and ran to the herd. And the herd ran to them and they all touched noses. And I was like, welcome back. Were you okay last night? Were you scared? You know, we're all here. I had so much mudita going on for cows. (laughs) Because I was calm. When we're calmer, we become more in touch with ourselves. We become more connected to things. It's natural. We're natural. We're naturally connected beings. It's, It's a beautiful part of who we are. We don't have to generate it. We don't have to make ourselves be like that. It's when we become quiet and we become settled we find ourselves, just we can't help but care. And then what happens, of course, is when we care, we care for all of it. We care for the 10,000 joys and the beautiful things and the greetings of the, of the cows. But we also care for the sorrows and the difficulties. And if we become more tender, we don't just become tender for the fun, we become tender for the pain. And it's completely inevitable. And as we do this practice, and lots of you already have said, we become more in touch with how we're feeling, and how we're feeling sometimes is sad, or sometimes is afraid. 
you know, sometimes is really hurt, grieving some of us. And that's going to be part of the journey. So you can't select out certain things that you feel. So this brings me to compassion. So I will talk a few minutes about this. Compassion, like as I've just described, the metta isn't a doing. It's a not doing. Meaning when there is some kind of upset or or struggle in your heart, the tendency, untrained, is to do something about that. That's not okay. What What can we do? How can we? How can we deal with that? How can we figure it out so that it will not do it again? Or how can we get rid of it, or antidote it, or put it on somebody else, or even just try and explain it away? It makes us want to do something because it's unpleasant. Meditation practice, the teachings of the Buddha, aren't doing practices. They're allowing. When we can be more settled and up comes some pain for some reason or other, which is inevitable. In fact, it's 50-50, joys and sorrows. It's not 10,000 joys and 3,000 sorrows. (laughs) Unfortunately. Or that's just the way it is. Unfortunately, is uh, we don't want it to be that way. This is the way it is. When something comes up, we tend to struggle against it. Compassion, real compassion, isn't any struggling against anything. It's like, oof, this is sad. Period. It's very quiet. It's not busy. And there are very few phrases associated with it. A phrase would be, may you have ease in the midst of this struggle. Or, this is hard. Or, I'm really caring for you. Or, modern things, my thoughts are with you in this time. Or, I love you. I'm thinking of you. Some of you know I was a midwife for 20 years. When someone's in the drama of their most intense part of the labor, it's painful. Almost always it's some degree of pain. Sometimes it's very painful. And uh, the midwife's role then isn't to say, oh, if you do this, it'll, it'll feel better. Or, um, I know this is, you know this is a problem. Let's see if we can get some drugs here. The midwife's role is to say, yes, that's really painful, isn't it? That's some of the most painful stuff you're going to feel. Is to say, yes, and it's okay. Is to hold steady while allowing the 10,000 sorrows to be there, or even one sorrow to be there. It's making a warm space. One of the lines I'll never forget when I first read it many years ago was um, Stephen Levine in Gradual Awakening. I think it was like 1973 he wrote that book. Noah's father, if anybody knows Noah. He said, uh, float your pain in an ocean of mercy. Ocean, big, that's meta, big, 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 tender. But don't try and do anything with it, float it. So compassion is that. Meeting the difficulty with this tender, big, oh, this is hard. What we do, because we are afraid of it, is we do all the things we can to try and fix it. And the Buddha calls that a double dart. 
The first art is whatever it is that's painful. The second art is, oh, this is awful, I've got to get rid of it, what will this mean, maybe I'm never going to be able to, and all of the, we add, and we therefore, we don't just maximize, we inflate the problem. We turn it into an enormous thing. It itself is bad enough, whatever it is, but actually, we can accommodate. That's what tolerating means. It doesn't mean just putting up with. It means making space for. That's friendly. This is, here, this is how it is. I'm in grief right now. It's, this, is, this is sad. And when we can do that, there's something sweet. The sweet is that there's no conflict. It's sad and it's grieving is painful, but grieving can be a sweet kind of pain because we're not struggling against anything. It can be so with any of the 10,000 sorrows. So compassion is that. Um, When Larry was talking the other night, he was talking about the near opposite of things, the far opposites, the near opposites. The teachings of the Buddha are these Brahma-viharas, friendliness, compassion, karuna, appreciative joy, mudita, and uh, equanimity, upekka. You, of course, recognize the names of where you're living. You're in these states. We're trying to help you really abide in them. (laughs) And he has this great teaching that Larry was referring to. There are the opposites of those states, complete opposites, far opposites. Love, of course, is hate, ill will, um, and so on. I won't go through them all. I haven't time. Um, But there are these near nearly ones. Larry was using the word near opposite and I asked him about it because the more common translation is near enemy. And Larry said, I just don't like the word enemy. And so I used the word opposite. So it made me think about this. So I'm not using near anything. I'm just saying nearly love is love and, and wanting with it. Mostly when we want, when we love something, we want it and we want it to stay nice. And we want them to stay good and to behave in certain ways. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of expectation we put on them. So that's nearly loving in a meta. It's nearly friendly, but not really. And so nearly compassion, but not really, is what we tend to do. Because we tend to be not quite so divine as the divine abidings. So a little less divine Compassion is, oh, this is so hard, how can we fix it? Oh, this is so painful, oh my goodness, this is awful, who can I sue? Or, oh no, or maybe I'll see you tomorrow when you're feeling better. Or, I'm sure you'll be feeling better tomorrow. Because I can't stand it. There's some, even a little bit of aversion, that's nearly compassion. But true compassion is like, this is hard, man. Mm. Oh, I feel for you. Or us. We tend to go to either aver- some form of aversion. We don't like it. Of course we don't like it. You know, it's hard. Um, and the other, the other near compassion state we get into is pity. We can say, oh, you poor dear. Hope it doesn't happen to me. We're kind of like, you know, there's a protecting ourselves and pulling away in pitying. Pitying is definitely separating. Real compassion, karuna, as taught in this, isn't any separation. It's just, oh, yes. 
holding tenderly. Some people say it's a, a, the, your heart, your tender heart quivers. I'm just going to finish because we need to finish because we have to uh, do our supper thing. So I'm just going to say one other little thing. I love talking about joy. And uh, Larry's talking about joy this retreat. So I've restrained myself completely from talking too much about joy other than happy cows. (laughs) But I do want to mention equanimity very, very briefly. Just because two days ago on BBC World News, which is where I go online to get my news... Um, there was a little, just a little tiny thing that I thought I'd share with you about Dr. Stephen Hawking, and uh, who's 70 years old. And um, he said these two things, and, and this is my idea of equanimity. He said, uh, first of all, just as a character thing, he said, I'm the archetype of the disabled genius, or should I say physically challenged genius, that's more politically correct. <laughs> he said, at least I'm obviously physically challenged, whether I'm a genius is more open to doubt. I just think that's so humble. But then he says this, the human race is so puny compared to the universe that being disabled is not much of a cosmic significance. (laughs) I'm sure my disability has a bearing on why I'm well known. People are fascinated by the contrast between my very limited physical powers and the vast nature of the universe I deal with. Vast nature of the universe... Meta grows us wide. It's not about the detail, the word, the muse, your current whatever. It's this big resting in the divine states, which are our, all of our, all here, when we get out of the way. So let yourself clear yourselves out of all of the puppies and settle down and abide in the meaning of these words, you're wishing yourself and you're wishing each other and you're wishing your muses because they're so divine. In other words, relish your life. Feast on your life. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.